All right, y'all, welcome to FM Mission, the podcast for people on a mission in arts, entrepreneurship, and activism. Tonight, my very special guest is adjunct professor of history at the Citadel, Mr. Damon Fordham. He's an author and a public historian. And um, I met Damon in downtown Charleston originally, and I started listening to him speak, and I uh, just immediately was drawn into um, your, your very in-depth knowledge of South Carolina history mm-hmm. and, and history in general. And I just wanted to share um, one of the things I do with this podcast is I just really try to give people a chance to listen in and pick the brains of people who really have are out doing things. That's kind of the, the, the prerequisite to be on here. Well, really, thank you. And, um, your, your books, you know, um, you're very active in the community. Right. And then also, like I said, a professor of history. Mm-hmm. How would you get into teaching history to begin with? Well, to make, okay, I'm going to give you the uh, two to three minute version of that. All right. The essence of it is that as a boy, I love to hear the older people tell stories about history, particularly my parents. They were born in the 20s and they lived through the Depression, uh, World War II, segregation and civil rights and that sort of thing. So I grew up with a love of that and then I also loved to read too. But no one ever put it in my mind that I would make a living out of those things. In fact, a lot of people thought I was strange that I was so academic and so unathletic. Because, you know, usually the expectation of young black males is that we're good at all things physical and not so much mental. And a lot of people kind of don't even realize that on a subconscious level. But that's what a lot of people think. But anyway, my, yeah. um, but anyway, my professor, Dean Willie Harford at the University of South Carolina saw that I was reading history books for fun and only taking five minutes to uh, take and pass fully an exam in his class. And I was majoring in business management, not knowing any better. So he said, have you figured this out yet? And all of a sudden, ding, there it was. I came to understand that this was my purpose in life. Really? Really. The idea of FM mission is for people on a mission, whatever it is, and it varies for each of us. And... So I love to hear your purpose was you, you fell in love with the idea of history, the not what what do you mean by that? Your purpose? My purpose I've come to understand that my purpose is preserving the stories of my people, not just my people in particular, my the African American people, because I consider humanity my people in general, mm-hmm. but to the group in which I belong, uh I happen to belong, through you know, through of course uh social engineering, they preserving their histories from forever being lost to the graveyards because so much of it was not reported when it happened. Much much of it has been suppressed. And the vast majority of it is unknown to the general public. So therefore, since I have such a love for this type of thing, I've done a lot of cases where I've uh, taken down the stories of elders before those stories were forever lost to the graveyards and preserving them via books, videos, uh, social media, etc. So, and thus having, using those stories as teaching moments to the general population, I find that I take a lot of great joy in that. Yeah. I I want to go back to what you said there about um, copying down these, this is our roomy Karen, it's all good. We do a very casual uh, podcast. Dave and I are sitting in my living room here in North Charleston. And I'm... Well, you were just saying there about getting these stories down before they're lost, and they're not generally known to the general public. Mm -hmm. There is so much truth in that I have found coming down here and getting to know people Mm -hmm. um, in your stories. And 
you said there's a lot of res- um, suppression. Um, time. What do you what do you mean when you, when, you, when you're talking about these stories? If just somebody's listening, they don't know the kind of stories you're talking about. You say you're people, and I love what you said about you see yourself as part of just humanity, and I feel the same way. And I, it's one of the reasons I love having these conversations. Mm-hmm. But for whatever people are uncomfortable having these conversations, you know. And so I want to just give you a chance to kind of give some some insight into what you mean by that because I find it so fascinating. Well, what I mean by that is you notice I said uh, my people through social engineering. I didn't so, notice you said that. Yes, and there, and I would be happy to expand upon that. Please, please do. Because you see, in Africa, prior to the transcontinental slave trade, Africans never saw themselves as one people per se. They saw themselves as members of different tribes and nationalities. What we know is what this concept of race is a recent concept in human history. It did not exist prior un- prior to the 1500s. Because Cause I know what you're talking about a little bit. Um, just if it, so, you're saying that what what I what I've read about this and this idea kind of maybe ties into like the idea of right around the Bacon's rebellions and that there was not uh, a race. Right, I'm about to get to that. I'm about to get. To <laughs> but that. race was not an issue before that. You're not even an issue. It wasn't. Right. It wasn't because you see the average person prior to the uh, prior to the transcontinental slave trade as well as the age of colonization, the average person in those days never went more than 20 miles beyond where they were born. So unless you lived in a place like the Roman Empire or the Mediterranean, where you had the cultures of North Africa and the Middle East and Europe meeting together, it was rare that you saw a person who did not look like you in human features, you see. So, therefore, that was just simply not an issue prior to the days of the transcontinental slave trade and colonization. I've kind of often thought that the idea of what you just said there is that you really didn't... So the, the idea of, you know, people living in, a, in a, such a way that they really didn't see a lot of other people in general, right? Exactly. I mean, so, that wouldn't, so <laughs> basically, you had... Uh, what you had was opposition to people based on such things as tribalism, different religious beliefs, different social classes, or being from another nation. But not so. But the issue of the a person being superior or inferior because they were Asian or African or European—that concept just simply did not exist prior to the transcontinental slave trade. Please expand upon that. I just want to really get into because sure, I mean, it's, sure, it's deep sure. stuff you're talking about. Very interesting. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not really, uh, it's not the kind of thing that you would get a PhD on. I mean, this is stuff that's easily explainable to the average person. It's just never, it's just very seldom explained to the average person. So I'll go ahead with that. The essence of it is this: that once you had the age of exploration after Marco Polo and Columbus and all these people. The Europeans, of course, figured out that they had all that they were these other things out there that would help make Europe better if they were to go and take them back to Europe. All right, so you had the shipbuilding technology of Europe, in which they would uh, go to such places as North and South America as well as Asia. They understood the ancient Greek concept that if you had a superior navy, you can really run things, right? And a superior shipping system. So anyway, when they colonized Brazil and North and South America and such, 
they tried to, you know, they needed people to cultivate the land to get these natural resources that would make money for Europe. So they tried this at first with the natives of these areas, and that didn't work because the natives knew the land very well. And then they had the poor white indentured servants. These were poor whites who were arrested for debts and various other sort of crimes. And their sentence was to serve essentially as slaves for seven years to a landowner once they got over here. But the problem with that was that when these white indentured servants were toiling in the fields, they had already begun to enslave the blacks, bringing them in from Africa for a lot of this. And the two groups were getting along a little too well for the power structure because they felt that if these two came together, they might realize the common oppression that both of them had because the poor whites were being uh, exploited as well as the blacks. And if they came together, they would overthrow that system. So in 1676, Nathaniel Bacon of Virginia, he tried Bacon's Rebellion in which they tried to get the enslaved blacks and the white indentured servants together to overthrow the system of Virginia. But he died of dysentery, so they said, oh, no, we can't let this happen again. And that's when they began a process of divide and conquer among the poor whites and the blacks, telling the poor whites that if these blacks were to advance, they would be at the bottom of society. So as long as the poor whites were focused on uh, oppressing the African-Americans and the African-Americans were, were, had to deal with getting the poor whites off their backs, both of them would be too busy to consider the fact that they had a common enemy in the wealthy power structure of colonial America. And that's what racism is all about, Charlie Brown. Yeah, and, and you th and I've read this in different thing, and it, but you're, that story is so seldom told, you know, at all. You, you, that's, you think that still is being today the same old story used to divide and conquer? To an extent, yes, because what you have in South Carolina and in the other southern states is as follows. You see, after the fall of Reconstruction, you had the United Daughters of the Confederacy pretty much uh, set the curriculum for history in the southern schools. How, how did that and, come to be? Because uh, I'm familiar I'm, I'm with that. I'm about to get, I'm right. that, I'm getting to that. Anyway, so... What that, so what happened, so I was about to tell you, what happened was that they basically passed laws, they passed in the school curriculums that slavery not be taught as a cause of the Confederacy, that it was this basically idea of uh, Southern independence. Okay, Southern independence and states' rights, but to do what? That type of thing was pretty much downplayed, and they glorified the idea of these... Uh, Confederates being these great heroes for this noble cause. And during Reconstruction, you had this period of advancement for African Americans. They had a black governor of, of Louisiana, Pinckney Benton Stewart Pinchback in 1873, who founded Southern University, one of the largest black colleges in America. There were two black lieutenant governors of South Carolina. USC was integrated from 1873 to 1877. But you see, all of this was just such an abomination to whites who were trained to think of blacks as their inferiors that, that in Pulaski, Tennessee, on December the 24th, 1865, six Confederate veterans got together to form the Resistance Army to Reconstruction. They named themselves after the Greek word for circle, which is kuklos, 
than the Scottish word for family, which is clan. And now you know the rest of that story. And uh, it's such an interest when you putting these pieces together. Cause we're talking about wide swaths of history that bring us to today. And actually, today, if this is still going, you said somewhat in the southern. And so you you mentioned the daughters of the Confederacy, correct? A lot of people would, and the reason I started asking, this, see, a lot of people wouldn't know just offhand what that means. I vaguely, because I'm from Indiana, mm-hmm. where a lot of this is strange to me. Like you said, not being taught, there were almost no realities of the Civil War was taught to us. And I don't mean that they glorify. I mean, they just kind of glossed over, hey, we're the North. We stood for what was right. We did it and we moved on. Kind of. You know what I mean? That was basically... That's the t- kind of ironic because Indiana had one of the largest Klan populations in the 1920s. It, I'm from... Uh, my family's from Elwood, Indiana. I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? Uh, let's see. Um, Wendell Wilkie, one of my heroes. You know, I, I, the name, though, I vaguely know it. I mean, I, because of all this, so um, I, I didn't grow up in Elwood. I grew up like 15 minutes from Elwood. Okay. So, so I know uh, Indiana's reputation, which, like you said, is very interesting. And and I don't know, you know more than I, but my understanding is they really weren't a state during the Civil War. Right, Indiana? Well, no, not really. But uh, later on, they were an extremely conservative state. But ironically, Still are. Well, yes, but ironically... One of the most progressive politicians in the early 20th century was uh, Wendell Wilkie of Elwood, Indiana, who as early as 1940, when he was running for president, campaigned on a platform of ending Jim Crow. You, uh, you had published this online not uh, long ago. This stuck. I was still, why do I know that name? And I've never heard of this guy being from... Well, the- Wendell Wilkie's largely forgotten today because he died relatively young. But he, But most people who know about him know that he ran against Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1940 for president. But he was a man way ahead of his time. He traveled around the world in 1943 and wrote a book called One World in which he called for the end of colonization. And it certainly wasn't, you're talking before World War II is finalized. Uh, it's interesting being from there, would you think I would have heard of this guy? Well, you well, I would thought that, but again, you know, see, people have very short civic memories in general, and and then as, as I mentioned earlier, he died unexpectedly young at the age of fifty-two to his bad personal health habits, largely, yeah. and so thus he was thus you know he died before the end of World War Two, so so much happened after that that he was largely forgotten. Let's go back to, to this idea of what you're talking about of. Um, 1500s and racism coming to be a thing. I, in, a, in a most ways, I think I generally believe what you say to be true. And, and like I said, you, you can find these stories if you look them up, right? Like the Bacon's Rebellion. That's why I was familiar with the, the concept of that. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to have Damon on. I, obviously, I've seen him speak a lot and listen to him. I read your posts. And you had a thing on the other day about some ancient wisdoms. You know, I was talking about Proverbs and different things like this. And, what you're talking about there with the divide and conquer, you know, early in Genesis, right? The gods say, let's go down. They're beginning to mix mortar and sledge. And if they all come together, there's no telling what they will do. And they go down to confound their language. Oh, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, well, absolutely. Well, I didn't quite look at it that way. But How do you look at that story? That's what I take from it. Is, you mean the Tower of Babel? Yeah, and I take that this is an instruction manual. This is just one interpretation. It's not my sub. Okay. It's an instruction manual for leaders often as it's handed down to how to maintain power, as you say. And one is 
you can always be on either side of these stories. One, but if you're the power structure, divide and conquer is very much in your favor, as you're saying. Well, yes. So that you're the Tower of Babel. I always call it Babel, but uh, so I, and I just bring that up, saying you know, I have no idea. Well, I never thought. But then again, of course, you know, two people could always look at the same thing and come up with different interpretations. I'm just saying. I wouldn't say that you're wrong. I'm just saying I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Well, what, what do you think of when you think of that? What, the Tower of Babel? Yeah. Well, I think of it pretty much as an... I see that more or less as a warning against vanity. Tell me what, what, what your thoughts are there. Uh, well, and if you know, if you want to get into the book of Genesis and the Tower yeah. of Babel, essentially when uh, they built out that they would build a tower that would reach up to heaven and say, Behold, how great is man that this was God's way of showing them, hey, look, know your role here. Don't uh, don't get too high and mighty and arrogant. Pride goes before fall. Similar to the story of Icarus in ancient mm-hmm. Greek mythology where the father and the son, they make these leaves, uh, they, these leaves where they can fly around ancient Greece and the father tells the son, don't fly the wax wings too close to the sun or you will fall. But then the son got to thinking that he was God and he flew too close to the sun, and the sun wept, melted his wings, and he fell, and he fell into the river. So yes, yeah. he died. So I, that's kind of how I see. It. But again, there is no right or wrong way to interpret these type of things. I mean, that's entirely up to I agree with the individual's point of view. Mm-hmm. So you know, I would say that. Well, you know, when I hear how you interpret, I just simply say I never thought of it that way. One interesting thing we're talking about is these perspectives. I suppose maybe that's why they call it the living word, right? Is there right. is more than one interpretation? Oh, definitely, definitely. And very interesting on that. I listened recently to um, Guy Ritchie speak, and he was talking about the story of the prodigal son. You're familiar with that, I'm sure, and most people are. Oh yes. If, if you're not looking up, just to save his time. Well, I'm. You know, I'm. Uh, I'm well, see, I spent uh, much of my childhood in Sunday school, and so I teach at Charleston Southern, so I have to have a considerable bit of uh, biblical knowledge for that, so I'm yeah. pretty well-versed scripturally. So. I, I think we, we got talked this the other day, and then we mentioned Proverbs, you mentioned ancient teachings out right, of Toth, I believe. and No, 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 I didn't say anything about you Toth, said, I was talking about Tahotep. Okay, that's what you're talking about. Explain that to me real quick, that way I don't confuse Tahotep the was the Tahotep was considered to be the foundation of ancient Egyptian philosophers some uh, 2,000 years before Socrates and Plato and the rest of them in ancient Greece. Tahotep was one of many ancient philosophers in Egypt who had these basic proverbs of wisdom and the writing, the teachings of Tahotep, which was very popular when I was in college. It's basically he's this grand vizier to one of the pharaohs and before his son dies, he wants to fill his mind to leave behind this wisdom to write down so that when he's gone, the son can learn from it. And so he tells the son various things such as, uh, be not proud and arrogant with your knowledge for w- wisdom could be found among women at the millstones. In other words, he's saying that don't th- you can learn from anybody, no yeah. matter how educated you are or uneducated you, you think the other person is. Even a person without formal education has had life experience that you did not have, and you can learn from that. Yeah. Oh, and I love uh, where we get this. Is one of the reasons I knew it would be a very fun conversation to have a damn very interesting. Back then, and like, so we can all take different things. Um, that idea of divide and conquer, 
reason I like I said the, the idea of the, the podcast with if you're on a mission in arts, entrepreneurship, or activism is in activism today, which is kind of where Dame and I met. We kind of were talking before the show. We just through some people trying to gather and organize here in the Charleston area over the last several years. Dame and I crossed each other's paths, and to all of Damon's points tonight, I, I, I find that that idea, and I, I think one of the ideas that I've always tried to do with this and I think is where Muhidi and I were really trying to do together as friends is begin to start these conversations where we can talk about the very things you're talking about but without I, I like think that in, unless this stuff is formally acknowledged which we know this is a big part of that's like the idea of suppression that we're not going to be able to move on because we, we're not really talking about a lot of truth right it's and we, if we never acknowledge these truths then we can't begin to make changes. One of the reasons I want to have Damon on the show. There's several reasons why. I'm sorry. No, I go ahead. Interrupt you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to give some context for how no, I understand. we would move forward in these conversations. And I'm so thankful to be able to have it with you. Go ahead with that. Well, now, getting back to Muhyiddin Baha. All right. Uh, for those of you who are new to this podcast, he was this brilliant young activist who was assassinated at the age of 32 in... 2018 in New Orleans, and he was this brilliant, lead, brilliant uh, de facto leader of the Black Lives Matter movement in Charleston. I say de facto because he never proclaimed himself to be as such, but he was considered as that. And it's interesting he, how, how we met sort of ties into that, in that uh, it was probably at that same event that you're talking about where we met. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came up to me and introduced himself, and he said that he'd seen me on television or something like that and wanted me to teach him about history. And so I said, uh, Muadine de Baha said, is that after uh, Abdul Baha? And he said, you know about that? And I said, yeah, I've read Abdul Baha's teachings. And uh, Abdul Baha was this brilliant, uh, f- brilliant philosophical religious leader whose father founded the, the uh, Baha'i faith, which <clears throat> is where which believes in the unity of mankind. And Abdu'l-Bahá was sort of like uh, Nelson Mandela of the late 1800s and that he spent 40 years in jail for his beliefs. But, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Well, a lot of people wouldn't. But, uh, but in either case, though, because he studied Abdu'l-Bahá's teachings and all, his, and he acknowledged that that's kind of what helped him make him what it is. Now, what does this have to do with what you just said just now about these conversations? You see... Muadin took the time to read such things and to expose himself to a variety of different teachings to make him what he was. And the average person basically knows what goes through life knowing what they're told. Right. You see, they basically go by the hearsay that they have told all their lives. And as they grow older and they confront ideas that are contrary to that hearsay, they can't deal with it. This is what intellectuals like to call cognitive dissonance. But I like to speak in the language of everyday people, and it's just basically a matter of being angry and confused when you're hearing ideas that you're not accustomed to hearing. Right. And so that's what makes these conversations difficult, because when you go into this strange territory with some people... They are afraid, they are self-conscious, and they're afraid of looking ignorant. So they get resentful when you bring up these ideas that they haven't been exposed to because they feel, oh, wow, this guy must think I'm stupid. So then they're going to try to turn that around and make you look like the fool. 
There you, I mean, there's so much uh, of resistance is that, right? Is the, the idea of... I, what I think is a big issue we're dealing with in life is just... And not just in this time, but I think... Um, I'd say it's all been done to a degree. I don't know that that's always true, and we're seeing some strange... Not just strange, just a, an epic uh, technological change in the last 30 years that's, you know, unprecedented is... Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that. I, I'm not so sure that it's all been done doesn't mean we haven't been here before. I we have. I think so, too. That you think, you think so? Well, yeah, because, I mean, right now we're having this uh, technological revolution with uh, the rise of the computer and the Internet and cell phones and smartphones and so forth. Whereas... When I was a boy in the 60s, the most advanced thing we had was television, and computers would fill the size of the room that we're in right now. But even before that, when you had the rise of instant communication, such as the telegraph and later radio and so forth, that was revolutionary yeah. for a lot of people. And then when people uh, learned, you know, were able to make cheap newspapers through movable type as well as uh, instant news, almost instant news with a telegraph, that gave access to a lot of people who never had access before. And thus you begin to have a lot of less responsible journalism. And with that less responsible journalism, you had things like uh, the Americans' involvement with the Spanish-American War, which was based on a false rumor about them attacking an American ship when the ship uh, blew up in a boiler explosion. And they were able to manipulate the minds of the readers that uh, Spain did this, and so we went to war unnecessarily. Would you say that's one of the, the first starts maybe to what can be called maybe taking advantage of, I, I don't want to even use the word false flags, I don't want to give it to that, but the idea of taking like the Gulf of Tonkin, right? Like taking an event. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Spanish-American War, right? you think, was there a... Result. Yes, that was 1898, and that was an early example of it. But then, too, you also have to consider how earlier we spoke on Reconstruction, right? Right. During Reconstruction, you had black legislators like the great Robert Smalls, who in 1898, here was this man born in slavery, and at the Constitutional Convention at the uh, where the federal courthouse is today, he proposed the public school system of South Carolina on uh, January the 23rd, 1868. And these men came up with such things as a, taxid, a taxation system to make public schools free for everybody in South Carolina, as well as, as, well as uh, one of them even suggested that women should have the right to vote, although that was outvoted at the conference. But you had these African-Americans and white sympathizers passing very progressive laws. That in the 1800s. That's correct. In the 1870s, that would have really benefited this state. But both the Confederate leadership as well as the poor whites simply just could, just found this just too far out from everything they had been told all their lives. So they had to come up with this narrative that these African Americans were ignorant and causing all this ruckus within the state house and so forth and uh, causing all this corruption when in reality there you know with any government you're going to have some minute bit of corruption but they made it seem like these guys were just complete 
incompetence and degenerates because it just went too far against the narrative in which they believed all their lives. And, and with that, you th- the narrative that the people they were speaking to believed already. That is correct. And they knew who they were talking to. Right. Well, you see that recently with President Obama. Right. I mean, you know, President Trump for sure, right? I well, mean, yeah. He knew who he was speaking to. Exactly. Whether you, you agree with him or not, right? The guy. Oh, he knew his audience. Right. Very well. Kind of, I'm just trying to relate it to today. Is that what you're saying? These, these people were speaking to an audience. Oh, yes, definitely. Were... Ben Tillman, you know, was doing pretty much the same thing in 1895 that Donald Trump was doing over. Uh, over a century, almost a century and a half later. Yeah. Although I've never known uh, Donald Trump to have anybody lynched, but... Tillman did. Oh, yes. Yeah. Quite a few. But you mean that behind the scenes, essentially with murder and terror, he had deals done? Yes, he was the architect of segregation in South Carolina, basically. Well, what does that mean? Cause, again, if you're not from here, not being from it, it's hard to imagine... The government here, as it really operates, compared maybe to if what somebody well, thinks of they, as typical. They openly violated the 15th and 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which was passed in Reconstruction, said that if you were born here, you were a citizen, with right. all the rights pertaining to a citizen. And the 15th Amendment in 1870 said that if you were a male a citizen, you could vote. So Tillman and people like that they basically said that uh, they've had so that it was okay to have seg- se- have separate facilities as long as they were equal. But the problem was there was plenty of separate and almost never any equal because these states were poor to begin with. Yeah. Secondly, uh, they got around, they didn't openly say that black people could not vote. What they did was to say that you had to pass an examination in order to have the right to vote, which didn't violate the 15th Amendment. But, of course, what this would mean was that an illiterate white person could sign an X and the registrar would let them vote, and a black man with a Ph.D. from Harvard would be denied the right to vote because whether you could vote or not depended on the registrar. That was their way of getting around the 15th Amendment. But yet, uh, this all this happened while Congress looked the other way. How does that happen? And it's hard maybe for anybody to imagine the real geopolitical reality of the time. I mean, if you're just thinking about this, you know, I don't know. The same way that you could have people with a modicum of intelligence in 2021 who could be led to believe that uh, an election like this could be stolen, that that on May the 4th, that on March the 4th, they would re-inaugurate a president who had actually lost an election when, in 1930, the 20th Amendment ruled out any inauguration on March the 4th. It had to be on January the 20th. And the, the same way that people today are manipulated into the most ridiculous types of nonsense through social media and the Internet, the same way the people of that time were manipulated by the politicians of their day. What do you think that is knowing how to play upon fear? It's knowing how to... It's basically the abuse of knowledge for the exploitation of the people. In other words, it's instead of using your intelligence to make humanity better, you play to the crowd for your own benefit. Right. That's politicking, if you will. Well, yes, it is. And, and see, the problem with that is that 
history has shown us that a nation so easily deceived is easily destroyed. Right. Oh, and then let's bring that back to the idea we're talking about. And I love having these conversations. And this might be the first time some people have ever heard this stuff. And I wanted to, and I'd like to do it more formally than here sometime, but just acknowledge these realities. Oh, yeah. You know, that I don't know that... Um, oh, excuse me. One thing I have to add, I'm sorry. I didn't yeah, no, go ahead. I, but one thing I do want to add to that is that uh, the book that I'm working na- on now would, it, it tells of how when Benjamin Tillman did make those laws in the South Carolina uh, House of Representatives, there were six African-American leaders. The great Robert Smalls, who we talked about earlier, Thomas Miller and... Uh, William J. Whipper from Charleston, Robert Anderson from Butte, from uh, Georgetown, James Wig and Isaiah Reed from Buford, they went to Columbia and challenged Ben Tillman at the State House over enacting those laws in, a, in an eloquent fashion in the face of extreme threats and ridicule. They lost their, they lost their case, of course, at the time, but of course I've uh, looked through the archives to bring the story back to life, but in 1895, they had the attention of the world and their brave stand against Benjamin Tillman. Now, I think it's important that I mention that because even people who are sympathetic to black people have a tendency of portraying us as helpless victims during this time period. And in all actuality, the opposite is true. These people didn't grow up, go out without a fight, but that goes against a lot of narratives, so a lot of people don't know that. I lo- I'm glad that you brought that home. Is uh, One of the things I've realized in my time here of reading South Carolina history mm-hmm. is the African-American version of it is absolutely not what I've been told of it. Right to your point there. Right. That's because the version that you've been told largely came from the United Daughters of the Confederacy taking control of the narrative to make the Confederates look like the good guys. Yeah. So I want to go back to this again, this idea of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. If somebody's out there, you know, what's going, what the hell are they talking about, the United Daughters of the Confederacy? How, how do they get involved in education well, at the state level? Essentially, these were very powerful women who advocated for these type of things in the uh, latter part of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s. And they had a vested interest in this because these were the, literally the daughters, and in some cases, wives and granddaughters of Confederate soldiers. So... Most people don't want. Most people want their immediate forebears to look good. And right. the plain truth of the matter was that the Confederacy was a disaster for the South. They lost very badly. Their cities, their civilization had literally been ruined. As uh, Margaret Mitchell once eloquently put it, a civilization gone with the wind, if you will. <laughs> and so, with the misery of all of that, and then to have these people see the people who they once had as slaves actually take a hand in running things for a while and all that, and knowing that you had a lot of poor people in particular who wasted their lives so these rich people could enslave people and all that was just too bitter a pill for them to swallow. So they had to change the narrative as a psychological salve, you see. It makes a lot of sense. How often do any of us do this today, right? We find Rationalization, ways. Rationalization, right? if you will, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anything. It doesn't matter right? what right. it is. You can find well, it. Well, yeah, and that, and that cuts across the issue of race, too. Right. You know, because I get uh, African Americans mad at me when I talk about black slaveholders and things like that. I mean, the fact of the matter is there is no such thing in human history as a race that composed completely 
of intelligent people, of ignorant people, or of good people, or of bad people, you see. These things go across the board, and humanity has its good, quote-unquote, good guys and bad guys. But unfortunately, and this is especially true today, so many people think in terms of absolutism. Mm -hmm. And they figure that if one person from one group does something terrible, that's a reflection of them all and all that. And that's just nonsense. Well, it's not true either way, right? I, I'm glad you said because these are these conversations are uncomfortable for people. So, but it's the same idea. You know, it's a hard time to be white and white male at the moment. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you know, that alone now makes it to where it seems you can't have an honest. Right? Somehow, your point of view is jaded, and just your point there, right? It's uh, that's not any more true, right? That all white people are one way than anybody else. In my opinion, right? It's hard to hear. It doesn't mean it's, well, you know. Well, the thing about that is, but see, again, see, that's when you deal in terms of absolutes. And what I find weird about what you just said just now is that you actually have white people saying that stuff. Yes. So, yeah, that I mean. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Well, wait, so I love that we can have it because this is what I think when people are like, why do you think that is? Why does it not make sense? And why do you think that well, I'm is? not white. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got. I have my own theories, right? I mean, there's a couple. One, I'm glad you brought. There's, there's two questions that I wanted to ask you tonight. One was back to you. So there's never been a group. Or, is there any group of people that rose as a nation or an empire-like thing that didn't abuse no people? Never, never. Is that part of what we call the fall of man? You think? Well, here's the thing about it. A lot of my friends who were, well, you know, among the political left, you have a variety of people, right? Mm -hmm. You have some people who were just way out, you know, like, uh, say, back in the day you had the Weather Underground. Mm -hmm. And you have their modern day, uh, uh, their modern day counterparts in the more extreme edges of Antifa, right? And then on the other hand, you have these these leftists who are not as extreme, but they tend to believe in what I call this uh, John Lennon narrative. I mean, they really believe in all of that. Imagine all the people. You know, yeah. They, you know, they, they, turned, they tend to turn a blind eye to the fact that there's a dark side to human nature, you see. I think it's a great way to say that, but go ahead. Well, yeah, because, and see, and so they have a hard time dealing with the fact that... Uh, you know, people across the board, regardless of, you know, because because people who are in that category I just described to you, they have this strange idea that poor and oppressed people can do no wrong. They see us as some sort of noble savage, if you will. Yeah. And I've experienced that quite a bit. And so thus, when they find out that we don't, that we are no different in our humanity than anybody else, that we have... Um, you have people who are charlatans, just like anybody else. We have people whose motives are not necessarily pure. And you have people who don't always fall into this category of perfect victims and all that. They can't deal with that psychologically on a lot of levels. And, yeah. and, and so it's difficult for them to have that conversation. Yeah. I love this conversation with you. Is you seem willing to hear and listen and try to address intellectually any point, right? I, I've never seen you lose your cool and seem to come right off of the emotional cuff. You you seem to be willing to, to look at. I get that from my dad. 
Well, you know, <laughs> the more I hear about your dad, the more I'm sure I would have liked him. Uh, on that, bringing it back to, and we're getting closer, you know, to, uh, I try to keep these right out of now, and I, I enjoy the conversation so much. We were just saying there, um, I told you, you know, online the other day, we were talking, Mujia Dean helped teach me that so much that we were talking one day, and I said, well, you know, and I used the term the black community. Mm-hmm. And he corrected me, you know, and we laughed kind of like you and I. And he said, you know, Mike, you, you use this term black community as though there is a black community that is. And that's what a lot of white quote unquote allies think. Well, yeah, and I naively thought it at the moment, right? And, and when he told me, I was just embarrassed, like, well, of course you're right. Of course, it's well, just yeah, people. Yeah, there are some people who might be listening to this who uh, I will not mention by name. I had a conversation with one lady like that about a year ago. And I said, what is it, why is it so difficult for you to understand that we don't all think alike? And there was this huge pause, and she said, you know, we never had the luxury of understanding that. And I'm thinking, so what do we, I'm like, so... That goes to show me that, see, this person claimed to be an ally, but in reality, she was dealing with a glorified narrative of who we are as a people. Again, you know, the noble savage stereotype that we're all these miserable, uh, downtrodden people who are just wailing in our lives of constant misery under the foot of the white man and so on and so forth. And there are some who deal with that more often than others. Right, that's okay. true. That's just a simple fact of the matter. And then you have people who have been raised in dire poverty and deal with constant police brutality and so forth. And you have people on the other end who grew up in a very sheltered middle class and uh, before his recent troubles, I would say a Bill Cosby type environment, if you know yeah. what I mean by the Bill Cosby show and so forth. Yeah. But yeah, so you have that going on. You have people who have very little connection to what you what is commonly referred to as the black experience. Yeah. Because you have to remember that not everyone's quote unquote black experience is the same. Yeah. Well so when he had even said that he said, you know, in the white community, do you ha- do you all think the no. same? I said, Well, you know, absolutely not. And I said and he said, Well yeah. He said, Well why and that's where the embarrassment right? it was a naivete, like you said, of maybe I so ignorantly used a term like black community and when I say ignorantly, I mean for my own self. I'd like to think often that I try to think before I speak, and he's different. And I try not to fall into that thing you're talking about, right? Of this um, savior complex, if you will, right? I, I'm trying. Oh yeah, that. But then here I am, and so it's just a very interesting thing. But these conversations don't happen where anybody can stop and not be afraid of. Hey, I can have a conversation with my buddy Damon, and I can ask him, hey, without feel, you know. Well, there's a couple of things to that. See, yeah. Some people. Because, see, here's the thing. These things that you and I are talking about are not known to the average person. Right. Okay, so that means that a lot of people may not have, since it's not known to the average person, they may not be able to articulate these things as a result. And a lot of times when you ask people questions that they don't know, that they, you know, they would rather pull teeth than admit that they don't know certain things. So they get very defensive and... You know, as, I, as we discussed a little bit earlier about uh, when when you catch them at something they don't know, they're going to try to make you look like the fool. Right. Well, you know, that's, that's what happens sometimes. A lot of people resent the fact that they don't know these things. And so rather than admit that and keep it moving, of course, they get very defensive about that. So I get it on that level. But 
At the same time, though, it's a matter of getting people to understand who they are as individuals. That because you happen to belong to a certain group, or uh, whether it's a racial group or an economic group or a religious group or a geographic group or whatever, you do not have to live within the confines of a narrative. Yeah, and you I think for the idea of the mission, are. right? That the, exactly. the mission is to help people that right to realize. And Reverend King, Christian King, was uh, a guest. My on buddy, him. I love Rev. And that's she said. We have that in common. <laughs> she, well, you know, when you get to meet a real angel, right? I mean, she's one of them. She she's trying to teach the kids. She said that they have a choice. To your point there, and I said, what an interesting take, Rev. That. It doesn't come natural that you have a choice. She said, but yeah, to your point is people are stuck in this narrative. And if you get right habit force, you forget you have a choice. You are an individual. You can change. It's hard. Well, yeah, because see, this, this, you know, I had to deal with that a lot in my youth because uh, my first two years were in segregated schools. Really? And we had this, we, you know, we were on the verge of this once. You said you wanted to really get into that. The, what was that experience like on yeah. that occasion? Yeah, I do remember that. But, um, and so I spent the remainder of my elementary years in integrated schools. And but before that, you were in, what year was this in South Carolina? Just for 1971, people? I started going to integrated yeah. schools. I went to segregated schools from 1969 to 1971. Just but, again, if you're a listener, we're talking about 1971 here. Right. Just give us some context. This isn't ancient history. Sure, sure. This is fine. Sure, fine. What essentially happened was this, that in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that, segregate, that, that segregation was unconstitutional because essentially what you had was black children were forced to go to largely, especially in the country areas, inferior schools with secondhand books. And you had what was known as split sessions, meaning, like, for example, in 1970 and 71, I went to a school where I would go from 9 to 12 in the morning and you'd leave. And then the other students would come in from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. The purpose of that was to maintain a permanent class of cheap labor, you see, especially for the southern states, as well as to uphold that uh, not only, and not only to uphold the issue of white supremacy, but the middle class white kids and their separate schools were actually getting an inferior education than the wealthy white children and the public schools, and the private schools, excuse me, right. see, something to consider. But anyway, getting back to, to your point. So South Carolina did not allow any black children and white children to go to school together until forced to in 1963. Uh, Millicent Brown goes to... Rivers High School and um, and several others are going are forced to go to Charleston High School, but they had what was called the Freedom of Choice Plan, where if you wanted to go to an integrated school, you could, but very few black parents were willing to put their kids through anything like that. So there was very little integration. So the Supreme Court said in 1970, that's it. Y'all played around with this too much, integrated once. And so that's the, one of the very famous images, right, of the, the, the young girl. Ruby Bridges. But that was in uh, Louisiana. The, but the same idea, right? This is when the Supreme Court finally laid it down. Right. Give us the quick, uh, you know, cliff note of that history. Because, again, if you've never really you talked about my history or this other stuff. <laughs> the, the history of um, the, the Supreme Court ruling. Oh, yeah. Well, forced just, integration. Well, right? I just explained that to you. 
that in 1970, the, the Supreme Court said, there's been enough of this. Now, my situation was interesting because I was going to a black elementary school in Mount Pleasant, and uh, my dad came to pick me up one day, and he saw that I was reading this book called The Golden Dictionary in the Corner, and the other students were working on a lesson. So my dad says, uh, well, wait a minute, uh, is he being punished? And the teacher said, no, sir, Mr. Ford. He says, well, why is he over there with the book while the other students are doing the lecture? And so, so the teacher says, well, Mr. Fordham, your son already knows how to read or write. We can't do anything with him here. And that's how I wound up going to the integrated school. Okay, what an interesting story. It's one of the reasons I love, like, I, I, on here, I want people to get a chance to pick the brains of people. And to hear that story, you know, you seem like a young man to me. I'm an old man myself now, right? I'm sure we got to be close. And it, it, it I turned 56 on December 23rd. So to think a 50-some-year-old man is telling about the time that he went to an integrated school. is, I think it may even surprise people. South Carolina is different. And I don't think, you know, like you said, it's not this backward, you know, people have asked me, I said, you know, if you go up north, that's segregated still to me well, compared yeah. to here. I mean, some of the worst bigots I've ever met were from Maine and places like that when I was in college. But see, the difference is this, that uh, even that the average white southerner at least has some association with black people because black people are... You know, people. You know, people are often shocked to learn that we're only thirteen percent of the United States population. Yeah. Because we're concentrated here in the South and on the East Coast, a few of the major cities of the West Coast, and scattered about a little bit in the Midwest. But you can go to like Iowa and I, excuse me, Idaho and uh, the Dakotas and Nebraska and uh, Wyoming and places like that, and not see us for the whole state. Yeah, it's interesting when you hear you say that and, and to think about this thing. I'm from the Midwest, and like, see, so, you know. Well, yeah, but the, but again, see, the average person only knows what they are told. Very few people know how to do real research. You see, they're under this misguided idea that Google is research, and it's not. <laughs> right. Go on that real quick, and I have one last thing to wrap as we wrap up the hour. We use Google's not research. As a professor of history here, you know, locally here in Charleston at the Citadel Military College, right? Um, what is real research? Real research is understanding how to use a primary source, which is the original source of an information. For example, when you read a book, a good nonfiction book, it usually has what's either called footnotes or endnotes, right. which uh, tells you the source of that information. And in order to see if this is correct, you go back to that original source and then you go look up some other sources and so forth. And... The internet, you don't do that with the internet. What happens is you put something on the internet and you don't have to put a source on that as long as it, and see, the average person goes by uh, goes by emotion and impulse and not necessarily reason and logic because it takes training to go by reason and logic and not everybody has that kind of training. So they use this to exploit people through propaganda and pushing these points of view. In other words, telling them what they want to hear to get over on them. And I think that's what happened with Trump is, right? We go on on about Trump as well. Well, it's not just him because, you see, again, you know, you find a lot of fallacious thinking on the political left, too. Yeah, yeah and, and by that, I simply mean some people, like you said, some people on the left seem to not be able to wrap their mind Woo! around. <laughs> it, it, it makes it hard sometimes for, because well, sometimes people because, think everybody's like that. Well, no, because, you see, you have on both parties 
arrogant self-righteousness, you see. Right. And see, I can't get into that because yeah. I look at it like this, see. You know, I may be what's considered a learned person, quote unquote, but I'm learning every day. Yeah. Because I take time to read every day. I take time to uh, listen to people every day. Yeah. And Esau Jenkins, the great, the local version of Martin Luther King around here mm -hmm. back in the 1960s and early 70s, he was killed in a car crash in 1972. Right before he died, he spoke at uh, Hot Gap Middle School on Johns Island. And the man with a fourth grade education who grew up to become one of Martin Luther King's associates told the audience that never forget that you may have more education than your parents, but your parents know some things that you don't know. And that people who've never been to school have experienced and learned things that you don't know. It's a, and I think you're right back to the idea of being willing to admit that you don't know, right? That, that there's more than one way to look at it. Exactly, because now granted, you know, most people, if they hear the name Minister Louis Farrakhan, are going to like, oh my goodness, right? But he did say one thing on one occasion, even though it was from him and he's a controversial source for a lot of people. Fair enough. But he once said something in one of his sermons, I believe it was in the summer of 1980, that went like this. He's told the audience, every one of you in this audience is my master and teacher. And he was saying that to say that... Uh, you know that every one of you knows something that I don't know. Yeah. And so while one does not necessarily have to accept all of his ideas right. to accept that statement in its isolation. To, to your point there, you know, you're right. That name, Louis Farrakhan, makes some people skin just right. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, and I don't certainly, I, I don't actually know a lot about Louis Farrakhan's speech, but but I've read a, a lot of different things and you know, I'm familiar, very familiar with the, the Nation of Islam, you know, um, mm -hmm. Red Malcolm's autobiography. So, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with, with them, you know, being, and, but just to your point is, you can listen to somebody you disagree with. Yeah. And not have to take any, but you can just listen, right? And like Louis Farrakhan, you can actually listen to Louis Farrakhan and not have to feel anyway, right? You can just listen to his speech and go, that's a point of view. I hadn't thought about it that way. Not necessarily how I feel, but, but again, that takes a certain amount of growth to do that because, because see, this is where I get, get into it with a lot of people when they talk about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and so forth. Right. right. See, I would love to hear this. The those modern comments. point of view is one of absolutism, where if a person, you know, because the fact that George Washington was a slave owner, right. oh, forget him. He's No, 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 no. George Washington warned this country. In eight in seventeen ninety six, in his farewell address, that the two party system would con, would con, that they, the political party system would create nothing but division in this country, and he warned against the political parties taking hold in the United States. Now, yes, he was a slave owner. Yes, he had a woman named uh, Ona Judge pursued and running away from slavery and all that. All of that is true, but can you deny that what he said regarding uh, the, the the danger of a political party system in America? I mean, we've seen that come to pass, right? Yeah. So I say all that to say that you can that is not it is not intelligent to be absolutist about people. Right. You don't have to. I mean, for example, now no sane person would consider Adolf Hitler their hero, right? 
okay? But Adolf Hitler was pretty slick one time in saying that he once gave this analogy about Lenin, where he said that when Lenin took over Russia with the Communist Party, he didn't go into all of this Marxist theory or anything like that. He to Lenin told the people that he was going to give them land, bread, and peace. So Hitler was saying that you don't just deal with a whole lot of theory in dealing with people. You basically tell them what you want to, t what they could understand to get them on your side. Now, what Hitler did was absolutely evil. No sane person would walk around with a Hitler poster or anything like that. Right. That's just outright wrong. But he knew how to manipulate the minds of the people, you yeah. see. And in studying that, you can be warned against that when you see it. Absolutely. And that's a great point to that, right? Is You can't make something go away by pretending it's not there. Exactly. Right? See, so that's why this whole thing with this cancel culture stuff, and all, I'm not with that at all. You know, it's I, I David in my audience. I've tried to stay the hell out of it because I can't take listen to the ignorance. You know, <laughs> that's why I love to have a conversation like this. You know, where we're talking about things like you said, we're talking about real life and, and trying to move the conversation forward because all so much of that seems like people are taking the divide and conquer bait so easy. Well, what's happening now is that see what we're dealing with at the moment is nothing really new because you see in the late 60s you see you saw everything that we are seeing right now yeah in the late 60s only you had uh george wallace and richard nixon as opposed to donald trump you had uh hubert humphrey as opposed to joe biden yeah and you had the black panther movement as opposed to black lives matter and you had the weather underground as opposed to antifa same thing yeah when you, you know, say it like that the more it, things change the more well, they... yeah that's what it is and see history goes through cycles history goes through periods of intense activism and uh high political awareness of such things and then it goes down into and then after that that sort of burns itself out and it settles into periods of apathy where everyone's not so serious. For example, here's what I mean by that. Okay, in 1968, in the 1968 in the early 70s and all of that, the music was uh, Bob Dylan and Marvin Gaye's What's yeah. Going On and James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. All yeah. of these songs that, was filled with, that were filled with social consciousness. Then... By the time I was 12 years old in 1976, the number one song in the country was Disco Duck. Yeah, that's so true. Isn't it? You see my point, right? I do. And it leads to these points of being willing to look at things as things cycle. Right? Exactly. They're not absolute. And, and this is where we are right now. We are in this cycle where you have this uh, intense seriousness, this uh, intense political awareness, and you have these people who are very strident in their political beliefs left and right. And by the mid-70s, that somewhat mellowed out into the Gerald Fords and the Jimmy Carters and so forth. People who, you know, there was no one who really, really, there's very few people who really, 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 really despised Gerald Ford or Jimmy Carter. People could kind of be either way about them, but, you know, so, they, so all that polarization kind of died out for a while. And so it just comes the back. The cycle continues. Exactly. You know, um, on on that point that you're talking about there, just with, with the, one of the, and it's a great spot to wrap up, 
with what we're talking about, just Charleston and South Carolina being such a heart of the, the whole civil war, the civil rights movement, right? The, all this is, I see if we can't find some common ground, maybe this cycle again of war coming, it may never get better again. Um, that's why I want to have these conversations. That's why I'm glad you're here. Let me say this about that, okay? Yeah. That's what they said in the late 60s. Well, would and you that, not say that... And that, sh- and that cycle burned itself out. Yeah. Would you not say that the, the shot to John Kennedy in the head was a warning shot to those who dare, you know, cross the line that will stop at no one? Well, now, that's if you believe the conspiracy theory surrounding that, which I don't personally... Uh, I think what that I mean, on that real good, you you believe Oswald shot him? Is that what yes? You yeah, cool. Yeah, because see, I'm a very anti-conspiracy theorist type guy because some of that stuff is just too far out for me. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but what we said earlier, I always want to keep an open mind. Well, I understand that, but I mean, but there's just some stuff that's just outright nuts. Oh, I, I don't disagree at all. I I just personally, as what we said, I have a hard time after looking at all of that of coming to the conclusion that that could have been pulled off that way. Well, here's the thing, though. That depends on what you look at. That's so true. And by that, I mean that that they allowed a president in that spot. Well... In that way. Here's the thing about that. And then I look at what went since then. And just real quick on that, because I want to hear your point there. I feel the same way about any time... Big major events have shaped policy in that way. Is it, the smoking gun to me? Like so, it's like the Middle East. When you look at what happened to get us into the Middle East, part of the smoking gun is the fact that the war has never stopped. Right? It'd be different if there was this one isolated incident. But to me, just with logic and follow the money, I have to say, you know, it seems as though somebody wanted that war to start. Well, as far as that goes, now there's no denying that. As far as I'm seeing now, again, they are conspiracy theories, right? And they are conspiracies, right? There was a proven conspiracy to kill Abraham Lincoln between Lee Harvey Oswald and his com. I'm not Lee, excuse me, John Wilkes Booth and his comrades. That's historical fact, right? What I'm what I'm not too crazy about is this wild supposition that can't be proven. Yeah, you see, so I don't deal with that aspect of it. See, if you can. Prove it beyond a shadow about through reputable research, as we just discussed with right. uh, John Wilkes Booth and the and the comrades uh, his comrades killing Abraham Lincoln and all that. Yeah, that's legitimate. But there's but there is this uh, uh, this other cesspool out there with all with uh, as I think Norman Cohn wrote about this in his introduction to his study of the uh, Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which in case you don't, for the readers who don't know, that was the uh, forgery written during Tsarist Russia that blamed the collapse of Russia on the Jews. And Adolf Hitler would use it later on. But Norman Cohn wrote a book about it called Warrant on Genocide in 1996. And he said, he talked about this... uh, this intellectual underworld of fantasies churned out by cranks for the benefit of the ignorant and the superstitious. And he said it's a mistake to consider that the only ideas that matter are the ones that uh, can be accepted by the sane and the educated and that 
even though we may not follow conspiracy theories, we have to be aware of their presence and the people out there who follow it. So, for example, while we not while we may not take the ideas of a QAnon or, or something like that, we have to be aware that those things are out there and the people who believe in this stuff are out there. Yeah, and a lot of people... We just ignore that our peril. Yeah, to that point, I mean, a lot of people, and uh, I certainly, you know, think that we're going on, I mean, I think that was a data mining operation, it's very simply. Yeah. Um, just to your point, like, you know, these are just thoughts. I am not a concern. I just try to think about what's really going on. But well, I understand that because, I mean, like I said, <laughs> it's okay to be aware of this stuff. Right. But you have too many guys who don't have a whole lot of education to critical analysis. Yeah. Who will sit at their computers all day watching these YouTube videos of this utter nonsense. And they take it all in as pure fact. And just, you know, and, and run with it. And I think go, that's the problem. Like I said, as pure fact as though it's, you know, undisputed fact. Yeah, and they go to the, and they get into the barbershop with uh, these guys who listen to all of that stuff. And they go back and forth with it. So it becomes like uh, Ray Charles being the general of an army of Stevie Wonders. The blind <laughs> leading the blind. And as you well know in the New Testament, if the blind leadeth the blind, they falleth into the ditch. So you got a lot of full ditches these days. Yeah, that's a great uh, point there. On that uh, that idea, I want to take one of these to end it off here. That that I've that I um, just like in how you can be told things. When I was a kid coming from Indiana, right, you know, um, in the 1980s, I grew up. The generally all these things. And you talked about this was a specific agenda by the daughters of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. This idea that. Maybe there was this nobility or this standing up for states' rights, these different things. and States' rights to do what? When, uh, so to that point, exactly. So when I lived down here for a while, right, and I got around and I read more, and I read the South Carolina Secession Papers, and you realize that... They, Slavery! Yeah, they're, they're talking about states' rights. Just you put, that right that they want to have is the right to own people. Right. Right. Which is now why we have a constitutional amendment of it, so no state right can override right this simple reality. Thirteenth Amendment, that's correct. Um, but which is why it had to be common amendment, right? So it couldn't even be argued under states' rights. Correct. But that's what and it's in the secession papers, word for word, that this is in South Carolina. You know, which was the first state to secede. And again, like I said, not being from here, not from the South. You know, you wanted the. There's songs of it. It's easy to hate the man. It's easy to hate the system. I've realized this, right, growing up and growing up country and poor, these different, you know. And so, again, it's when you talk about being told what you want to hear, it's very American to want to fight the system. Well, I think that uh, it's not just true of us. I think it's true of almost any country where you don't have uh, a hardcore repression of the general public. I mean, I would say that this ex- exists to some extent in many European countries, for example, right. where uh, the people do have some constitutional rights and so forth, as well as Canada and other places like that. It's only in the countries where the leaders are in absolute control of the people where, you know, you don't have that on a wide level except on a ver- among a very brave and few underground. Yeah. And, and um, again, where it's easy to hate the system at times, but on an international level, right? And people fear an international call to come in and take them. But 
if it wasn't for some, you know, like again, the United States for, for whatever reason, right? That's a deep conversation. But in the Civil War, what if the people didn't come to the aid of the people? Oh my God, I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and, and all that's where I went into is that is that people, the people have shown up, right? I mean, yes. over and over. Um, well, in most cases, yes, because I mean, right now, as we speak, uh, as you know, in the former nation of Burma, what's it now called? Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar. Myanmar, yes. Yeah. You know, Myanmar. The, yeah, Myanmar. The, the, per, the persecution of the Muslims there as well as in China, among other things. You know, and you see variances of that kind of thing going on around the world right now. But we're so wrapped up into our own thing right now that we're not paying attention to those things. And I think that's to our peril. Yeah. On the, the, the second question I wanted to add to him, one was um, earlier, I forget, the, the second one was, if today you had a chance to talk to everybody and you wanted to do one thing to kind of move that conversation forward in a more truthful, reconciling way, and you said you said you had described really part of your mission in life is to keep the story of your people alive, meaning your direct ancestor, right? Not only that, but the, this particularly is a, a place you find so much joy and love and respect, I, I gather, just talking to you. Oh, and let me just say this about that, too. It's also important not only to study the history of your own people, quote-unquote, but it's also important to study world history, too, because it's in studying world history that you could put the history of the group that you belong to in its full, proper context. Right. You see how that compares with how other people have done things around the world throughout history. That helps you to understand that the more differences you think you have with other people, the more commonalities you have in reality. I think that's a great way to end it right there, isn't it? And with these conversations, hopefully we can work towards those commonalities. I think um, Mahia Dean would be so happy we're sitting here doing this, brother. I appreciate it. And uh, you're taking the time. You're, you're so insightful. And I love the different ideas. Like, again, I, I love to think about all ideas. And just, I, I like what you said about you like to stick to the things that you know. Oh, you yeah. Know, right? Because well, the theories yeah, I, mean, are, I like to learn and all of that. But I don't believe it. You know... I'll tell you why I'm like that. Because, you see, I was a, a very awkward teenager. Right. See, I was never any good at sports, so I just never had any interest in that, right? So as a teenager, you're trying to find your way in life, and you don't really know who you are. So the only thing that most of my friends could talk about, uh, other than girls, which I didn't mind talking about that, <laughs> was uh, sports. And I cared nothing about sports, right? So uh, I remember one day at the bus stop, uh, they were going on about these teams, and I tried to fit into the conversation, and I sounded completely idiotic. And the and uh, my peers made it very clear that I sounded idiotic and didn't know what I was talking about. So I so I tried to learn from my mistakes, and I took that to stick with what you know and don't look like a fool all the time. Okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm left with the old saying, right? You can uh, open right. Talk, open your mouth and leave and wondering, or open your mouth and leave no doubt. Yeah, Ray Charles once said in his autobiography that um, people might look at you and think you're a fool. You can open your mouth and they might know it. Yeah. As we leave on that note um, with Ray Charles, I believe, this is my personal opinion, Ray Charles is the best of all time. He's the, he's the one. If, if you give me any one person who could break it down right now, blues, country, rock, soul, jazz... 
Ray Charles, note for note. And there's several like well, that. Well, let me say this. If you feel that way, and I don't disagree with you, read his autobiography, Brother Ray, as I did when I was 13. It gave me a lot of insight. Yeah, Brother Ray? Yeah, Brother Ray, Ray Charles' own story. Yeah, I've, you know, I've watched the movie, obviously. Um, and just that really, that was what dove me. Like you said, I said, I will go read the book because of that. It, when, I, when I saw the movie, I was blown away. And speaking of podcasts, just want to give you a right. If you've never watched Jamie Foxx on the Tim Ferriss show talk about how he got from being a comedian to being a serious musician and that role with Ray and his way coming up, growing up in rural Texas and uh, raised by his grandma. And he said, my grandma was not, you know, afraid to get that shoe off and whoop that ass to him. He said, that's how I come up. <laughs> And he said, you know, and, and, and he just starts there. That's how the conversation starts. And it's unbelievable. Uh, I really suggest getting it. You know, I'm sitting here with Damon Fordham tonight, adjunct professor of history at the Citadel Military College here in Charleston, author, public historian, and obviously just a brilliant human being. I would love to do another one sometime because I th there were so many times we wanted to go into things, but we've been about an hour and 12 minutes. I try to keep them right at an hour. <laughs> so if somebody's working out or they got a car ride, Damon Ford, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome, Mike. It, uh, it really, uh, I hope people gained a lot of insight into this and just starts you to thinking. Um, I hate, you know, I hate when terms get taken from you, right? So do your own research. has <laughs> been kind of well, taken. Well, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, if through what you've heard tonight made you think, then I've done my job. That's it, and I agree with that. And uh, it definitely made me think, so I'm sure if they're listening... Um, Damon's got some books. Look him up. Damon Fordham, F-O-R-D-H-A-M, correct? Mm -hmm. They can find you all over the line. Just Professor Damon Fordham, Charleston. Yep. That'll work. Yep. Y'all, thank you so much for tuning in to FM Mission. We're for people on a mission in arts, entrepreneurship, and activism. And I think what you do is a bit of uh, all those. Thank it, you. it really is. Thank you, Damon. I appreciate y'all. I'll see you next time here on FMMission.com.